This podcast was recorded on July 27th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are broadcasting live once again on the YouTube. Um, so you can go to youtube.com backslash double line capital if you'd like to see our guest up close in person. We promise to focus on him significantly more than us. Therefore, uh, you don't have to continue to look at us. But today's guest is Greg Dowling. Greg? He is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Research at FEG Investment Advisors. FEG stands for Fund Evaluation Group. They're an independent investment consulting and OCIO provider. So those of you who don't know what an OCIO is, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit today. So um, Greg uh, joined FEG back in 2004, so he's been there a few days. Um, he manages the day-to-day -day activities of the research department. He chairs the Investment Policy Committee. He improves all manager recommendations, and including those uh, thumbs down for double line at times. Uh, but he also, more importantly, provides oversight strategic asset allocation, and that's what we're going to really focus on today. So, Greg, welcome to the Sherman Show, and thanks for thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's going to be great. Okay, so you started FEG back in 04, and before we get into all the acronyms and definitions, you know, what got you into this industry? Walk us through... Uh, the life of Greg Dowling in 37 seconds, please. 37 seconds. Okay. So I guess the what got me into this, this business I started pretty early. So I, I remember I might have been 13 years old, and I snuck into the movie Wall Street. So the 1987 uh, Oliver Stone what was the classic. Reason, what was the reason for sneaking in? Was it to catch a glimpse of the actors? Was it the topic? What was it? So I... To, to be quite frank, we would just go to movies and then we would just stay there all afternoon and just keep going to see other movies. And it was a great way to sneak into an R-rated movie, right? You pay for a PG movie and you go over. I knew nothing about investing. And I just thought, you know, Bud Fox, Gordon Gecko, it was awesome. Just loved it. And I think I immediately left and started looking for books and I bought a uh, Peter Lynch book. And, you know, he... he for those of you who are, who are a little bit younger, who are listening to this or watching this, you know, Peter was the portfolio manager of the, the very famous Magellan Fund. And I just, yeah, started reading books and said, this is what I want to do. Yeah, well, I've, I've read stories, too, that, um, you know, when Oliver Stone created that movie, it was an anti-Wall Street movie. So nothing says Wall Street more than the anti-anti, right? It's like those people I see with the anti-social social club shirts, right? So, um, you know, um, also, I, I hear you've got this uh, moonlighting gig or daylighting gig, depending on what time of day. Well, what else do you do on the side? Okay. So uh, besides my day job, I have moonlighted as a adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati, where I, I went undergrad, and I teach alternative investments. And that's uh, something that I feel 
fairly passionate about. It's just, you know, you guys are on the West Coast. And if, if you are in a coastal school, or you're in New York, or you're in San Francisco, it's probably not that hard to bring in a venture capitalist or a hedge fund manager. You just don't get that same exposure, maybe outside of, of Chicago. And so trying to use my Rolodex, trying to use my network to bring in managers so students can kind of hear about other things. It's not just about doing bond math and discounted cash flows. I mean, that's that's important, that's foundational. But you know, as we think about where the investment industry is gonna go, there are always gonna be people picking bonds and people picking stocks, but there's going to be a lot less of them because of artificial intelligence, because of the wave of passivity, uh, because, you know, fees are under pressure. So it's just going to be harder. And I think, you know, one of the areas that you can go to and where the industry is going to is private. So why not have some exposure to that area? So I try to bring that to my students, hopefully successfully. Yeah, I, I like that you bring up the phrase bond math because uh, I, I was doing that one time in a sales retreat and I said it's bond math to people and they looked at me perplexed. I'm like, wait a second, it's just math, right? I don't know why we call it bond math. Well, what's the difference between bond math and stock math, right? At the end of it, we're just discounting cash flows. It's all the same thing. So it's funny how we've adopted, we make it special, it's bond math, right? I, I tell you, you know, it, bond math is, is important for stocks right now. If you, think, if, you think, <laughs> yeah. if you think about every time the 10-year goes up, some of the, the tech stocks, especially the longer duration where their earnings are way out in the future, they get whacked. So I, I'd argue bond math is important for stocks as well. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So you heard it here first. So let, let's get into the acronym because um, it's something that's been a prevalent trend within the industry, the OCIO model. And you know, it stands for Outsource Chief Investment Officer. And so Maybe you could give us a definition. What what um, does that title imply, and what is the importance of it? Sure. So, you know the the consulting model, which is it's just non discretionary, has been around for eons. It's been around for a really long time. Probably over the last call twenty plus years, you, you've seen this move to more discretionary consulting, and, and, and we do both, right? So the, there's there's pros and cons to each, but for certain client types where maybe from a governance perspective that you want to just focus on what their goals and objectives are, but don't want to get into picking which large cap value manager to buy, or maybe they can't, right? Think of like high yield, right? So, so you get a bite at the apple every once in a while on high yield. And if you're meeting quarterly and one quarter you're talking about it, and then another quarter you're going to vote on it, and then another quarter you're going to pick the manager, you, you may be too late. And so for certain client types, having the ability to outsource some of the manager selection and a, and a bit of the rebalancing around their approved mandate uh, can be helpful. So it's just kind of working in conjunction with them, where if you think about what traditional consulting is, everything is consultative, like the name sounds, it's more collegial. And, and sometimes that works really well, and for some clients, it doesn't. So it, it's important to have both. And there's also a lot of folks in the middle that, that are a little bit kind of hybrid. Yeah, so Greg, you, you mentioned manager selection there. Uh, can you talk about some of the, the things that you look for when this is outsourced to you? What, what do you look for in a manager? Are you focusing specifically for sectors or do you look at the managers holistically and see what they offer? And then ultimately, what are some of the things that uh, automatically kick a manager out of uh, the selection pool and, and perhaps the other side, the other way around, you know, what are some of the things that you look for? 
Yeah, so we, you know, it's it's important to look past performance, right? Because a lot of times performance can be pretty mean reverting. I, I think too many people just look at how a manager has done the last six months or the last year. We try to take a much more holistic approach and we want to know about what's their edge? Uh, what's their process? Is, is, their, is their process repeatable? Um, is, you know, how, how does the firm work? And do they understand their edge? Not only do they have an edge, they understand it. Sometimes people don't even understand it. And so you, you look at all of these things and uh, many of these things can be, be qualitative. And the last thing you want to look at is performance. You almost want to cover performance up and just say, hey, what do I think about these folks? And then look at performance because it's not only hiring manager, it's, it's about firing manager. And sometimes that's the hardest thing because we're oftentimes from a behavioral standpoint, want to fire a manager when they're down. And sometimes you should, but, but other times they, their style might be out of favor. So all the other things at their firm are going great. They're you know, investing in their process, they're investing in their people, they're, they're doing what they said they were supposed to do. You know, maybe it's the time to at least hold and if not add to it. And that's a, that can be a hard thing to do. So that's part of what we, we also do is a lot, of, a lot of coaching because we all want to make the pain stop. And that often is firing a manager. But a lot of times you find that, and there's been studies about this, uh, academic studies that you, <laughs> they did this on, on mutual funds, but the mutual funds that were hired based on positive performance versus the ones that a, a plan fired, well, the ones that they fired did a lot better than the ones they just, just hired. Uh, the, the infamous Jensen study on persistence of mutual fund performance. So for those of you uh, that want to get in the academic game, uh, look at persistence and trends out there. Um, and Jensen uh, did great work. And uh, if you don't know what his largest contribution to the overall industry is, uh, this is my nerdiness, it's alpha. Actually, he's the one that coined the term alpha. It's called Jensen's alpha for those of you out there. So um, nice, nice little plug there, Greg. Um, so let's talk about, um, you know, managers getting fired and, and likes. And so uh, we got fired once, and this is in the last year or so, um, for uh, outperforming the index by too much, right? So it was like uh, we were outside of their wristbands, they thought, or something like that. So let's talk about these trends that have transpired, too. What, what are you seeing within the, the industry here? You, you talked about, you know, cash flows and, and how... Um, that impacts, you know, other, it goes over different sides of the market. But what are you actually seeing here from your OCIO clients? Are they demanding things like alternatives uh, because of what's being offered in the marketplace? Um, are they looking for more um, just that managing through a cycle? Um, they look at their funding objectives. What are you seeing out there uh, as a whole? And, and feel free to take any direction you like. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a lot. I'd say, and I'll probably say that my response is going to be true for both OCIO and consulting in, in, in general. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a handful of, of trends going on on right now, and, and one is from an institutional perspective, and it's also about our, our client base. Our, our client base it's over two thirds not for profit. A lot of uh, charitable organizations. We have universities, colleges. We have hospitals, uh, community foundations. And you're seeing a lot of them want to be a little bit more socially aware. And so that's the first thing. And, and, and oftentimes it, it may align with their mission. So that's a big trend that, you know, I, I'd say has been there for a while, but has, has taken on 
a new momentum uh, since we've had, you know, B2, we've, we've had a very polarizing election, we've had George Floyd, there's just a lot of stuff going on climate. And so people are, are doing that and they're looking past just negative screens. So before it was just like, all right, don't, don't buy Philip Morris. You know, now it's about, well, what can I do that's a little bit more, more positive and engaged and impact. So that, that's a big, that's a big trend that we're, we're seeing across. So kind of trying to get that double return, the, 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 the positive impact or the alpha, uh, but also can we, can we do good? So that, that's, um, that's a really big trend. The, the other trend is the world has really gone private, at least on the institutional side. And that's again different than maybe an individual person, but you know many of our our institutions should be around, hopefully around in perpetuity, and they can take a, a longer time horizon. And as folks sort of look out, kind of forward, not next kind of seven to ten years, you know a lot of the traditional markets aren't going to offer a lot of return, at least on a, on a if you looked at probabilities based on history. So when you have, whenever you have a very high starting point for equity valuations, which we do in the US, your returns are mostly lower. There's a few times in history where they've been higher the next 10 years, but only a few. And then, you know, if you look at kind of your, your starting yield, and that's not even talking about real yield, uh, it's, it's not looking good. Now that doesn't mean that, especially on the equity side, that over the short term, that things can't Go. Things in motion tend to go in motion. There's a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus, but longer term, it's really going to be really hard. I mean, they're bogey. Most institutions have a spending rate of about four and a half percent plus CPI, whatever whatever CPI is these days, and so that's going to be a tough bogey for for a lot of them. And, and they're hoping to get that through privates. And so you're seeing a lot more focus on privates. You're seeing a lot more focus on the kind of the social impact of their portfolio. So those would be the two main areas that I'd point out. So let's talk about that on the private side, because I hear this from a lot of investors or, you know, um, you know obviously uh, the, uh, the late uh, David Swenson coined the, the whole idea of, the, uh, of expanding the alternative universe and using privates. But one thing that we see in the private market, it needs to be valued somehow. And the heuristic is typically the public market. So how, how do you kind of square that circle there when you think about, okay, the private markets are somewhat overvalued or at least offer a lower return than let's say historical averages on a prospective basis. However, the private markets are still somewhat keyed off of that. And so um, you mentioned the longer horizon. Are you trying to harvest some illiquidity premium? What is, what is your rationale for thinking about that when, uh, as we see, there is this interrelation between the public and private markets? Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's always jokes about the, the someone saying, gosh, my, my uh, stock market's getting killed and the, the private equity analyst goes, everything's great for me. And, and, you know, the reality is one's marked daily and one's not marked maybe quarterly sometimes. Sometimes you wonder. We, we, we joke too, uh, at one of our investment meetings in early April, I was like, good news is private equity still up for the quarter. Uh, no one got the marks. And that was in April of, of 2020, right? I was like, yay, no, no one had the drawdown. And then lo and behold, you didn't have the drawdown because the markets recovered so quick, right? But anyway, jokes aside. Well, I mean, it's true, right? There's some magic in that, right? Not having to go to your, your board or, or to, uh, to any of your constituents. And you can be like, look, look how smooth this is. And it, yeah, of course, it's an, it's an illusion. But 
it probably it probably helps people avoid making knee-jerk reactions as, as well. But you know, so so why why do it right? And and, and it, everybody's kind of figured out this joke, and there's a lot of money there, and a lot of money tends to push down returns. And I think we'd be the first to say that yeah, returns probably aren't going to be as good going forward. But you know, they should still be better than the the public equity markets. And the reason for that is there's not many public equities anymore. <laughs> you, you think of like or the Wilshire 5,000, you know, like, are, is there even 5,000 stocks anymore? There's not. And, and, and so if you look at companies with over $10 million of, of revenue on the private side, I think there's like 30 times the amount of it. So your opportunity set is bigger. There are more levers that you can pull. Um, there's lots of regulations on the public side. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley is, is, uh, has been a determinant, uh, a big determinant on that. And so bigger universe, more levers you can pull, and there definitely is a liquidity premium. Will it be less in the future because there is so much money in there? Probably. But, you know, if you're still trying to hit your four and a half spend rate plus CPI, you're going to do whatever you can. And to, to, when we talk about capital market assumptions, when we do them, that's beta. So you, you talked about alpha. So alpha is the manager outperformance. And there's just more alpha on the private side. Now, that cuts both ways. If you have poor manager selection, you're going to do a heck of a lot, a lot worse. But if you can pick the right managers on the private side, hopefully there's a better ability for alpha than you would get on the, on the public side. So... Well, keeping on the theme of uh, alternatives and, and trying to struggle to come up with valuations, finding you know, the, the right metric, I suppose, one of the, the, the big themes that you know, people are talking about, and we're hearing a lot from uh, uh, younger investors as well, is the cryptocurrency and how to think about putting it within a portfolio, how you, I mean, forget valuation there, it's just riding the, riding the roller coaster, you know, you're, you're trying to catch a momentum, maybe, maybe that's the, the, the right thing there, but when we think about cryptos and you know, the emergence of uh, cryptocurrency funds and, and more managers entering that space, is that something that uh, your, your clients have brought up or you started to think about as, as something to incorporate into portfolios? And if so, it's like, how do you even think about that within an allocation, asset allocation? Yeah. First off, I, I was told there'd be no tough questions. What's that? It's, I, it's, a, it's a tough, I, it's a question that, that we get a lot. You know, for a while it was, you'd go to a client meeting and they'd ask you about SPACs. They'd, talk, they'd ask you about meme stocks and they'd ask you about crypto and probably specifically Bitcoin. It, it, it's hard. I, I have no idea what the proper valuation for Bitcoin is, whether it's 60,000 or 30,000. I, I think there, there's definitely value in blockchain technology. And so the way we've, we've approached it is mostly been on the private side, trying to find companies and, and managers that invest in companies that are using blockchain technology. And, and you know, some of them may also dabble in, in the currency, but we, we've really avoided for the most part the currency because it's hard. One, it swamps your, your risk budget, the volatility that, that it has. Do, do you have any, when it drops 80%, do you add to it? Do you sell it? I, it, it, it it's really hard. I, I have, um, you know, for, for those that have a higher risk tolerance and have the ability, do, do you want to put 1% of your portfolio in there? Some, maybe, um, when we certainly have a few clients and know a few pretty big institutions that have done that. 
Uh, it's just not something we've been pushing and, and encouraging people more to take the blockchain technology route than the cryptocurrency route. Yeah, um, the, one of our uh, frequent guests, a guy by the name of Mev Faber, he likes to always come on and say, like, think of things in the context of the market portfolio. And I, I think lately he's been talking about if you take the market cap of all the cryptos, it gets you to roughly 10 basis points of the overall kind of wealth in the overall world. So if you're going to allocate, hey, there, there's a place to start, but... Uh, I'm with you. I mean, um, I, I did see one headline earlier in the year that says, uh, you know, can I take my meme stonks and SPAC them to make a new crypto? Uh, and I thought that just kind of encompassed everything at once. But let's get back into kind of the traditional world, too. So, you know, as you're thinking about asset allocation, how do you kind of dictate a plan for a client? You know, we know how it is with individual investors. We talk risk tolerance, objectives, savings, education, things like that. Um, children, you know, estate. But when you think about this thing that's supposed to live into perpetuity, right? As you talked about, what what changes the framework when advising for asset allocation here? And is it a one size fits all, or is it highly customized? Right. So, so uh, the, the the starting point is that when you talk about institutions, they they defy Ben Franklin's two certainties of, of death and taxes. Right. So, so there's no death, no taxes. These hopefully are going to live on to perpetuity. So you start with a, a framework, not that different as you would with an individual learning what their, their risk tolerances are. And, and that gets to thinking about what a spending rate is. So, so I said the average is about four and a half. Some have higher. Some need to have higher because they support an operating budget. So if you have a you know, if you have a more of a liability or something you need to spend, you could argue that maybe you should take less risk. Now, getting that could be harder, but that's that's the push and the pull. So thinking about the the risk overall risk tolerance, thinking about the objectives, thinking about the resources that a client has. Is, is do they have staff? Is is it a volunteer committee? Uh, is is there a lot of cohesion on the committee where they all are kind of rowing the same way. Um, are they patient? And trying to define that. Uh, even though a institution may be around in perpetuity, uh, that doesn't mean they won't capitulate in two years. So you have to be, you, you know, willingness and ability are, are, are two different things. So you do that and then you start with the basic kind of mean variance optimization and, and you and you kind of you get to a, a level and then the other piece of it is a liquidity framework so what does it look like to if we're going to build out a, a private portfolio how big can we build it where there's not a not a cash flow issue if we have to continually pay out a certain amount of money so it, it is it, it's not that different than an individual it starts there it's just, there's a few more nuances and there are the, you know, the big things I said earlier about death and taxes. You can do, there's a lot of great alternative strategies that do well in a tax exempt institution, but are terrible, terrible for, for a taxable investor. Cause you know, your after tax return, it's just, it's not there. And so again, you have just a little bit more that you, that you can do. Yeah, um, there's a couple of things you used there that I want to jump on. Uh, you said patience, and I, th I think that's very important too. And you talked about the patience of, of your um, of your client. 
and we all we all have to go through that um, that ordeal as part of this business. But I, I, you mentioned the four four and a half on average spending rate, and earlier you used the word CPI plus that. So let's talk about patience. Let's talk about the word. Let's introduce the word transitory and inflation. So everyone we talk to, inflation's on their minds. It's something that we discuss all the time here at Double Line. Um, what is your view on the inflation landscape and are you hearing, um, you know, concerns from your clientele, especially those who have to protect those cash flows? Because you're talking about spending requirements. Obviously, it's a real spending after inflation because they're talking about this over the long run. So what, what's the buzz around the OCIO community about inflation and Greg Dowling's view? Okay. Um, yeah, so, so yes, institutions are, are talking about inflation. And if you think about higher ed inflation, that's there's always been inflation there, even when there hasn't been inflation any, anywhere else. It's funny how a word like transitory enters our lexicon. It's, it's one of those words, I probably had never used the word transitory very often. Now I find myself using it all the time. And, and even my non-investment friends are using the word transitory. I, I want to wait for one of my friends to tell his wife that his drinking problem has now become transitory. It's just one of those <laughs> throwaway words that we, that we use. So, you know, Obviously, Mr. Market seems to think it's transitory, right? So kind of if you look at the market, it kind of says, you know what, we, we, we've got some frictional issues here, supply chain issues, and we don't think it's going to be a big deal. So you, if you look at the kind of the tips market, right, if you look kind of further out, you don't really, you don't really see it there. Now, now, is it, is it real? Yes, I went to the I went to the grocery store the other week and a bag of ruffles. Now it was a family size bag was $6 and 80 cents. That is inflation. I cannot believe the ridges are chips. expensive. The, the ridges, ridges are expensive. It's, it's really uh, amazing. I kind of, you know, anecdotally blew me, blew me away. But if you look at sort of the, the quantitary theory of, of money, right? So, so, you know, this is the money supply versus velocity. The, the, the money supply has exploded. So if you use M2, but there's no velocity, right? It's just kind of like parked at the Federal Reserve reserves or bank reserves. It's just not there. And so you you, you see the way the market's reacting and you, and you see the way there are short-term issues. And you, and you kind of have to say, I, I kind of believe it, it it is transitory and, and, uh, until we get future evidence. And, and, and there's just such a savings glut around the world too. It's just like any time the U.S. rates get higher, and, and I and I think we do think they'll get higher, but only higher to a certain level because, you know, it's like it's like whack-a-mole. As soon as it raises their head up, you know, flows from insurance companies in Japan and savers in Germany come flying in and 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 push rates rates down. So we have a growth scare right now. And it feels like that the bond market has, has reacted more to the growth scare than to inflation. But my guess, and this is my own personal guess, is that once we kind of get through this seasonal period, that we'll kind of see that reopening trade start again. If the Delta variant is in check, and hopefully it is, you'll start to see the 10-year drift up to that one and a half to, to two range, which you know, isn't that high, right? I don't think that's all that that high. And and yeah, inflation may run hot for, for the next 18 
months, two years, but yeah, the, the other thing is what do you do? So uh, it, it, what do you do if there's, there's inflation and, and there's not a lot of great and perfect inflation hedges out there in, in many ways? Stop. Right, so what do you do? That's 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 yeah. the question. You know, transitory. You just defined now transitory. Eighteen months. It still sounds transitory. Again, I, I'm picking on you there because there's no definition of what it is. It could be a microsecond. It could be an eon. But what do you do with the, your clients who're thinking about it? Tips yield this week hit a new all-time low um, on the ten-year. Right. We got a new real. Uh, the real yield was negative 112 basis points this week. I didn't look at it this morning. It, it may be slightly lower with the rally. Um, what what do you do um, when you think about wanting to protect yourself from inflation? So um, call Sam and I, your uh, your OCIO client. What what do you do if we're concerned about this inflation component? Right, and and, and look, we were just talking about that on Monday. I think it the the real yield. I think it hit the low since like 1980. It, it's it's incredible. So what do you do, right? Well, there's two things that you have to kind of break apart when you think about inflation. There, there's there's expected inflation and unexpected inflation. And, and assets react very differently depending if it's expected or unexpected. And we kind of expect a little inflation, right? And so when there's expected inflation, there's not that many great things. And in fact, Stocks tend to do pretty well up to a point. So stocks up up to, at least historically, up, up to about a five percent level of inflation do pretty darn well. After that, you start to see the multiples that people pay go down. Unexpected inflation, commodities do great. Uh, they they do they're the ones that really kick in. And so so the reality is, you probably want. This is boring. This is what consultants do, but we preach diversification because you just don't know, right? It's, it's trying to build a, a portfolio that has some inflation protection, but you don't want to go too far because none of these have a beta of one. There really is nothing. And so, and some of them act differently versus expected versus unexpected. And so you have to have a little bit of each, but there's a carrying cost. And so trying to find that, that right, the right blend and again, it sounds boring, but you know, diversification is your friend in a situation like this. Okay. Well, also, uh, don't don't expect the bond market to always help you out with every answer either. Too, I, we have clients a lot, and I said, well, look at, at the negative one twelve on, on a tip. You know, it doesn't look very attractive here, unless unless we're really going to produce inflation for a period of time. And you know, I, I can make the arguments that some of it can persist, but you know, there there is a, a key of those components that are transitory. So. Um, what are you thinking about in the public markets? Well, what, what things do you like today in the public markets? Yeah, so, you know, let's talk, well, should we, I, I, let's do fixed income, right? So we, we, we're, we're in the, you know, I'm talking to you guys. Yep. It, fixed income is probably the toughest area. And what are we, what are we doing there? You would almost never tell anybody to index your fixed income because you could always beat the benchmark. The benchmark was was awful. Uh, it's still not a great benchmark. But in, in this in this area, you know, if you're gonna be a kind of a plain vanilla manager, you might be better off just buying the index and lowering your fees, and then trying to find some areas where 
there might be some slight mispricing. So, you know, hey, Greg, by, by the way, we're having you on our webcast. You know, I didn't dish your business. You're sitting here telling everyone to index away from us. Come on, hold man. On, hold on, hold on. Okay, here comes, here comes the sales pitch. Here comes the sales pitch. I should say what, what, what you what you should want to do, uh, where you want to have active management is, is you probably want to have some patience and be in areas that the Fed didn't really help support. Um, some different areas of the structured market in, in, in which it just so happens, Jeffrey, that, that you, you play in those areas and, and you're not alone. There are a lot of other folks that, that do that. And, and those, those are going to be places where you can, you can pick up, pick up some potential outperformance. But if you're just like plain, simple core bond manager, boy, it's going to be tough. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it, it, it's just going to be tougher to do and, and your management fees are going to eat away at, at, at return. So our, our thought when you would say be core, and when you say core to our listeners out there, you're talking about people who really just trade rates and corporate bonds, right? I mean, that's that's, that's, right. that's, that's core versus the core plus where you do loans, high yield, EM structure. That's things. yeah. That, just, just the core. And, and you're, we're really talking, we talk credits. It's usually investment grade, right? So, yeah. and, and it's, so if you want to pick up a little incremental return, you got to go core plus and then maybe, I don't know if there is a thing, but core plus plus, I'm making that up. And then maybe into some of the little more esoteric things out there, but you just got to be careful when you do that, because sometimes you'll get higher returns, but you may not be compensated for the risk that you're taking. And yes, everything's going great right now. And it should be great. It should be good for credit as a whole, but you know, the, you also don't want to play musical chairs. So the fixed income credit space is definitely a tougher spot. And you want to take all that and maybe we talk about the public market, I'll, I'll throw in, you probably want to barbell that with some private. Um, so some different barbell with the public, because you you're not going to have no fixed income. It's just, it's a tougher, it's going to be a tougher place to earn returns over the next 10 years, unless you have a lot of different tools in your toolbox. On the equity side, it seems like equity markets right now, especially the U.S. equity markets, have a bit. Now, not, and I'm talking about sort of this this year. Uh, certainly, it's been a little bit softer recently as we as we do this call. But softer, I'm talking about only a few percentage points below its all time highs, right? So, so softer, it's not should not be all that surprising. We're, we're definitely fully valued in, in the, the mega cap. U.S. stocks, and so you're, you're probably want to have more mid-cap, small-cap exposure. You might want to have some value that that's priced a little bit more, a little a little less expensively. You may want to think outside the U.S. So international developed emerging. Now you're playing time arbitrage because those are the areas that are getting hit right now with the Delta variant. So there's a reason they're cheap. And there's a reason why the US should be doing better than them. But the US is expensive and people are paying up for these, what they consider to be safer assets. And now somehow safer assets have become technology, quality technology names where it's kind of paying up for the Googles and Microsofts of, of the world. But you know, over the next three, five, seven, 10 years, you know, we think returns will be higher in international developed and emerging, and then probably value over, over growth. It feels a lot like we had a period of time 
in the 90s where it was all tech and all US. And then right after that, we had the 2000s and we had a period of time, a 10 year period of time where the return on the S&P 500 was zero. Now, zero return plus whatever you're gonna get on bonds doesn't get you to four and a half percent even with my University of Cincinnati math. <laughs> it doesn't take a stochastic differential calculus to get you there, right? So um, let, let me get a little more personal too, because um, I've seen in some of your materials too that you know um, you, a lot of the charitable work you guys do, and what I found pretty unique uh, up there in Cincinnati, um, you guys aren't hosting golf tournaments. You're doing something unique. So what kind of charity tournament do you, do you have, and what was the genesis for that? Okay. Yeah, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, we, we've uh, we have done a hockey tournament. So we've uh, and, and believe me, Cincinnati is not a hotbed of, of hockey. We just many of us at FEG play hockey. Our kids play hockey, and as you get to know managers over the years, and you know, we've covered some of the same shops for for you know decades. You, you have a personal relationship with them and, and you also know that their kids play hockey or they played hockey or maybe they played hockey a long time ago. And, and so we just had an idea where like, you know what, let's do an FEG versus our managers, a charity event and, and just play hockey. And we gravitated towards a, a charity called the Cincinnati Icebreakers, where they're doing sled hockey for those that can't play real hockey. So it could be a disabled veteran. Uh, it could be someone that has a handicap. And it's amazing when they're on the ice, they're, they're free, they're flying around. It, 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 it's such a great charity and, and it's, it's exciting. So we, we've in the last few years, we have supported them and we've also brought in some of the sleds so that some of the non-hockey playing people can kind of go, okay, get on one of these and see if you can, you can do it. So Super fun, and, and you know that's just a, just one of the different charities that we we support. We're, we're we support a lot of charities. We serve the nonprofit community, so it's important for us to volunteer on a lot of different local areas, and just you know, whether it's you know packing boxes, uh, food boxes at Thanksgiving, uh, that we do a lot of that. I, so I, I don't want to say we just play hockey, but that's probably the more the more unique one, and it's certainly for me the funnest one. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. I, I just saw that once and I was like, wow, that just seems uh, very risky uh, out there <laughs> for our old bones. And, and I could just envision Sam and I on, on uh, ice skates. Uh, just sounds like a lot of risk, you know, out there and um, limited upside. It sounds fun. Obviously, the cause is a great one, too. And so that was the Cincinnati Icebreakers, right? Is that what Cincinnati you said? Icebreakers. That's right. Okay. For those yeah. that, that are looking, looking for uh, to, to help out there as well. And, so, we, and I should say that, that there's we limit our risk as as being the host because if you check me, you will be fired. We will remove ah. you. We will remove you from the client portfolios. Okay, so I, I like where this is going too. Now you might now if I had the same level of protection, then maybe maybe indeed. So uh, okay, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting a little more interested, Greg. So um, one last thing too is um, you know you guys on the research side, you know. You, we love research. We love to read the stuff out there. Some of the stuff you do. And I know you have a book club, right, too, as well. And so what are you reading this year and why is it relevant? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, we've done this for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years where every summer we choose a book to read and we try to read it as an entire research group. 
And this year we are reading the Walter Isaacson book, Codebreaker. So, wow. Talk about relevant and topical. This has everything to do with CRISPR and gene editing, and that all leads to a COVID vaccine. So you would think a book like that wouldn't be interesting, but the race of all these different scientific teams to make the breakthrough it, it is amazing. And, and Walter Isaacson, if you've read any of his other books, he's done Da Vinci, he's done Steve Jobs, great author, great book. He could make a scientific race seem very interesting, but it also raises a lot of moral questions about, you know, if, if you could edit your children, would you? And th th there is a lot of also investment area here, because if you think about biotechnology, I mean, it, we're talking about technology as kind of being the current frontier. It, is biotech the, the next frontier? And there's going to be CRISPR can open up a whole host of potential new drugs and, and new cures. And so we're going to read this book together. We're going to get into discussion groups, talk about it. And then we have one of our biotech managers. One of the, We got one of the scientists at one of our biotech managers to kind of talk about well, what does this mean in terms of commercial products? And, and like, who's out there? Give us a market map. And so we're, we're trying to connect the dots, have a little fun, but also try to connect the dots from an investment uh, perspective. And uh, we're, uh, we're excited. So we'll, uh, we, we've just created our, our book groups and we'll be uh, discussing it here in August. That's awesome. I mean, uh, when I listen to you talk about this, it doesn't sound like you guys do much work there. You're out playing hockey, reading books, like learning all this cool stuff, but it's all applicable, right? And, and that's the key too. So um, one last thing before we let you go to here too. Um, uh, this is something I keep asking about because you know people all talk about the Delta variant and low yields and what's going on here. But what's a risk that's on your mind that you don't think enough people are talking about today? Wow. Uh, yeah. I, so, yeah, obviously the Delta variant's a big one. You know, th there's geopolitical uh, issues out right now. We have a, a, a it, it seems like we're coming to a head a little bit with China. Uh, China's getting ready to celebrate the big anniversary for the Communist Party. Uh, they want everything to go very, very well. And we are in a more unilateral approach confronting them. So Trump was more, not Trump is more unilateral. This is multi, Biden is much more multilateral. And that's certainly causing some, some friction. Uh, there's friction with, with Russia. Uh, there's just a lot going on. There, there always is a lot going on, but it, it seems to be kind of front and center in the marketplace. And that has some carryover to the markets. We're seeing a lot of heavy handed regulation on Chinese stocks. Many over two trillion are listed in the U.S. Um, so there's talk about well, this could this be contagion? We don't think so, uh, but we don't know. And so that that that's a that's definitely a a potential risk. Uh, there could be a risk of a new Fed chair. Uh, that seems un unlikely, but possible. We, you have Jackson Hole coming up in August. Powell's been pretty good, but what if he says something outlandish or miscommunicates or we, we just don't know. So I would say those are all kind of near-term risks outside of just the Delta variant. Well, let me ask you real quick. I, I said last question, but on that, has Powell become too complacent? Um, because you, you mentioned his errata and the things he could, or the ratum he could do, but I go back to his first couple of years on the job and, you know, he kind of struggled in a lot of those meetings and 
I feel like as of late, he's become a little more complacent and or he's at least managing it much better. So what's your opinion of Mr. Powell and, and what do you what do you give him as advice over the next five months as we round out the year? Well, you know, the first thing I'd say is, is the there was they were getting pressure uh, about maybe it was time to start to pull back and maybe slow down some of the buying, maybe the MBS book first in the agency market. But, you know, the Delta variant has, has really played in his hands. It's given him right. a lot more time and, and flexibility. So he can be maybe sound a little bit more complacent because he has the luxury of doing it. I think he was feeling a little bit more pressure to do something. Uh, I don't think there's the same pressure uh, in, anymore. I mean, I, I think he's really grown into the position. He, boy, was he awkward when he first came onto the onto the stage, and, and I think he's done a, a very more than decent job uh, in trying to also bring the the practicality. You, you, you know, they are bringing in a lot of different areas where maybe the Fed didn't care as much before. So you think about like maybe overemphasizing full employment, and then certain subsectors of employment, right? To say, well, that's going to be gauged. So, you know, the dual mandate still there, but it feels a little bit more heavily weighted on one of those mandates right, right now. So, I, I, you know, I think overall, I think he's, he's been good. I, I'd, uh, I, I wouldn't tell him to change a whole lot. I, I would actually tell him not to change too much because I think that could have a potential bigger shock in the market than him being complacent. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you, you talk about the dual mandate, but there's a lot of granularity within that. And I think that's where you said you started off talking earlier about the social construct and what your clients are talking about, but you're hearing that from the Fed, right? The underrepresented um, uh, cohorts within the labor market and, and really just not broad participation, how well it was going pre-pandemic because of that broader participation. So I've seen that. Uh, although I said one more question. Yeah, I, well, got one a, more. I got one more addition to that. I, I don't know if that they should be. Now, and I'll tell you this because it should be balanced and, and all the different cohorts in, in full employment are, are really, really important. But if there is inflation, inflation impacts the poor more for magnitude than it does the rich because they pay more for food, they pay more for shelter. So that's the one thing I would tell them is make sure you have balance in the force and, and don't swing too far to one side. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. Because um, you, you said one other thing that made me want to ask the other question is, why do people care about the mortgage purchases as much? Why don't they care as much about the treasury? So explain to me why that's the case, because um, I think most people don't understand the differences, but I, I'd like to get your opinion. Yeah, well, I think people probably care more than they, first off, Nobody understands any of this, and, and it's only been after years. I mean, we all thought it, and even the really smart money thought like, oh my gosh, the Fed's printing money, and, and, and QE is not printing money, right? It's, it's a much more technical issue where there's, they're not just printing money and it's going there. It's all about you know, building reserves and federal reserves. It, and when people talk about this, they go, oh my gosh, it has this huge impact on, on, the, on the housing market. And it has some, uh, but it probably doesn't have the, the same magnitude. And what they're talking about doing is not stopping completely, not selling completely. They're just buying a little less of a very, very large number. And so the, the optics probably are worse than, than reality. At least, uh, th that would be my opinion. I'd be curious, though, 
Jeffrey, what, what, what you think. It's like, what is the magnitude if they actually make a change? Uh, I mean, look, uh, our, our agency mortgage guys said that if they got out today, it would, it would widen spreads like five dips, maybe, maybe, maybe 10 on a, on a knee jerk uh, reaction to it. But why I get at that is that, you know, people talk about the impact of the housing, but the housing market is functioning with or without the Fed's purchases. You know, origina loan origination is robust. It's in the private market. It's going over to Fannie, Freddie, Jenny. Um, and so it's not that I think a lot of people think the house prices are being distorted because of the Fed's footprint. But what they're trying to do is buy interest rate sensitive assets. And so I was so happy to hear Jay Powell say that two weeks ago to Congress. Now, not that I, I understand, not that I think Congress should understand all of this, as you said, most people don't. Um, but at the end of it, it's, it's not that buying agency mortgage backs is what's causing it. It's just that they, they do have a heavy hand. I, I think they're buying too many bonds right now. And that's because there's enough supply. And I think that's part of the rally here. But five right. dips. So, so that's, I mean, that's like kind of, that's what I was hoping you'd say, because that's kind of in my mind, it's it's not much. And whether it's five bips or 10 bips or- Even it's, if it's 20, it's, does it matter? That's not going to change the dynamic, right? And so- It doesn't matter. Yeah. So all this does, as you see, we got more excited as we got to the end. This just sets you up and tees you up for the next round. So we're going to have to have you back, Greg, because we're running out of time. And there's one thing that Sam forces me to do every time, and it's his favorite part of the show. So before you leave, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part. So Sam, take it away. All right, Greg. And that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will subject you to a series of alternating prompts uh, between you and Mr. Sherman, uh, to which I hope to elicit a top of mind response. So I started off with Jeff Sherman and I pass it over to you and then we alternate from there. And the first one, uh, to Sherman is going to be debt ceiling. Irrelevant. <laughs> uh, over to you, Greg. Nominal yields. Higher slightly. I teed you up for relevant there. <laughs> and relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back to Sherman with COVID therapeutics. Intriguing. China. Normal after the Communist Party has their party. <laughs> I like it. Back to you, Sherman, with miscommunication risk. Ever present. U.S. demographics. Shifting. <laughs> U.S. semiconductor production. Let's, let's do some. Let's ramp it. Let's get it going. I, I don't know what phrase I want to use there, but increase it now. Taper tam, uh, sorry, taper timing. A little Freudian slip there, but uh, taper timing. Late 2022. And the last one, uh, starting with Sherman, favorite summer Olympic event. I'm gonna go to Cathlon, you know, cause you get to see a little bit of everything, um, you know, but I haven't seen any track in Philadelphia. I think it's usually in the second week, but um, you know, I know your favorite, Sam, is watching that Chinese hurdler on YouTube. Um, and so I know that we were getting fired up for the Olympics and we put that on the other day. So uh, if you haven't seen it, just Chinese hurdler, uh, you'll see it on YouTube. The guy is amazing. And you want to talk about just an unbroken spirit. The guy never gives up. And, that, and that's what it's all about. And so that he embodies the Olympic spirit. Yeah. And I will add for a better uh, search term on there, include the 
the phrase uh, "You're the best" afterwards, and you'll get the the, the best viewing of it from the but, Karate Kid soundtrack, right? The song, right? Yes, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But I did like how you take you took it old school with the decathlon. So kudos for that. All right, and then we're gonna wrap it up here with Greg Cincy versus Xavier basketball. Hopefully, it's relevant to you because <laughs> it's, it's 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 very relevant to me. Yeah. I'm gonna say Bearcats all the way. All right. So Sam, since you don't know much about, you know, the college athletics, that is Cincinnati, right? <laughs> yes, I should have said Cincinnati. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I just like to give him a hard time. He's a closet sports aficionado, but he plays dumb with us all the time. So, hey, uh, Greg, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. For those of our listeners that want to know more about what you do, what you can offer your clients on the OCIO side, where can they get more access to information? Just go to feg.com, OCIO Consulting, and shameless plug, we also have podcasts, and they're also good. All right. Well, look, shameless plug, just don't listen to his plug about indexing your bond portfolio, <laughs> and we'll all be good. So, no, thanks again, Greg. We really appreciate it. Love the candor. It's always a pleasure to see you. Can't wait to see you in Cincinnati at some point in the near future, uh, or maybe actually in the double line office. I know some of your colleagues are trying to get out here. Hopefully, we can get through this. So, uh, again, Greg Dowling, uh, Chief Investment Officer, Head of Research at FE, FEG Investment Advisors, uh, also runs the OCIO platform. Um, and, and I should say, and, and it's OCIO Consulting. We're, we're, we're both. I don't want to give too much, uh, too much to one side. We do both. Many, many clients on both sides. Correct, correct. So there's a consulting side as well. So, um, you know, he loves all his children. So that, that's good <laughs> to see. That's good to see. So um, you can catch this on YouTube. As I mentioned at the onset, youtube.com backslash double line capital. If you subscribe, uh, you can be notified when they come out. Uh, wherever you get the podcast these days, the list grows too long um, for me to keep track of, but you can uh, get those and subscribe there as well. Uh, don't forget also, Sam Lau co-hosts another podcast out there with Jeff Mayberry, the Monday Morning Minutes. They do that weekly. Uh, they give you lots of updates, uh, cover more market data. That's why we're going more abstract, talking Jensen's Alpha here. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube to Channel 11. Uh, my colleague, Ken Shinoda, Portfolio Manager, does a great, a great summary of the month's activities there each month. So, Greg, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was thanks fun. For yeah, a lot of right. fun, guys. Thank you. Okay, take care. Have a good one, okay? Bye-bye now. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as 
constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 Double Line Capital.